0: This episode of Super Pulp Science is brought to you by You Don't Have to Die in the End, a novel by Anita Dare, available at McNally Robinson and bookstores everywhere.
1: Attention, citizens! It's time for Super Pulp Science! This is Super Pulp Science, where we talk about how genre gets made. We have a full house in separate houses today. Uh, we have our long-suffering co-host, Justin Curry, who is currently doing the dishes while we record this podcast. Uh, Dan vaderbanker our fearless producer, who is uh, in some undisclosed mountain location. And Anita Dare, uh, author extraordinaire, uh, who is also on the show today to talk about how books get made. Hello, everyone.
0: Hello. Thanks for putting this together. I'm looking forward to this. So, first
1: off, the interest for our dear listener, of full disclosure, Anita and I both have books out this month from Great Plains Publications. Uh, we should both be having our uh, book launches this month cancelled. And so yeah. instead, uh, we've been doing all kinds of different things to get the word out. Uh, you were just on the radio on CBC yesterday. Do you want to talk about yeah. that a little
0: bit? Well, oh, that was incredibly fun talking with uh, Ismaila Alpha. Um, you, you know, I guess CBC just recognized that authors were having difficulty, you know. Ismaila is an artist himself, a musician, as as we all know here in Winnipeg. And I guess they they just came to realize that launches were being canceled. And they thought, well, hey, maybe we could do a little more and and help authors out on on the show. So I I think that's fantastic. I love it. It was fun to be able to talk about my novel after so many years of writing. And I can't wait for yours. You're on tomorrow. Is that right? That's right. I don't know when you're playing this, but... (laughs)
1: <laughs> yeah, we are, this episode will drop uh li- after my radio appearance, my big radio uh show. Okay. Now, your book, so
0: your so your radio appearance was the other yesterday the then. The other yesterday
1: say. as far as our li- our listeners are concerned. <laughs> um so your book is called You Don't Have to Die at the End. In the end. In the end. Uh, I don't have my copy because I can't go to the bookstore to get it. (laughs) Uh, However, um, what about that title in these trying times?
0: Oh, man. Um, (laughs) Bill Redekop on on Twitter said, you know, that has got to be the best title for for this period of time. And he said he was going to go out and get the book just because of the the title. Um, (laughs) You know, I'm, I'm not... I'm not going to capitalize on that. I'm not going to say, Hey, guess what? Ah, You know, because I, I just think that that's awful. But I mean, but that aside, this is a hopeful title. You don't have to die in the end. And I mean, if you can see it and if you can see the cover, yeah, it's got the word die in it and end in it, but there's Northern lights and stars and you just, I look at this and I get the feeling that it's hopeful and it is hopeful.
1: The cover Um, definitely suggests it's a person on a journey. I think, um, yeah. You know, and my book, Automatic Age, is uh, obviously after a robot apocalypse, but um, our, uh, my friend uh, Salima Nawaz has us both beat. Her new book, which was written long before this happened, launches, uh, I think, this week, and it's called Songs for the End of the World.
0: Oh, man. Yeah. Okay. I, and I want to read that one, too. And I want to read yours. <sighs> Got to get these books.
1: So is this life imitating art or art imitating life? Or are we prophets? What's happening? I I think it's
0: rather interesting, isn't it? Like there's always something, people talk about something in the zeitgeist. I mean, this was, in a way, what's happening now is completely unpredicted, but it's not. We've known for so many years that something like this can happen, Uh, right? I mean, I think it was early in in 2000, maybe 2004, 2005, I guess that's not early in 2000. I can't remember when, but the federal government actually traveled across the country and they were talking about pandemic preparation. So we know that there's been conversations about this in a long time. And so I think for a lot of us, I mean, artists are always kind of walking on the edge of things, you know, one foot or or certainly thinking about what can be on the other side of something. And whatever that edge is, I mean, it's different for all of us. So I don't know. Um,
1: So I have a question for you right down into the deep uh, dark of making books. All right. Where our podcast, usually we like to talk about how the tinkering is done. And uh, you have a number of novels under your belt. And so I have a question for you that's specific to how books get made when you make them. Um, When we are, when you have like, uh, here's a great example. My uncle was uh, was a mechanic and he used to say, you know, your car needs regular maintenance or eventually something will go wrong and it has to get fixed, right? And I've started to see my manuscripts the same way i know there are things that i regularly maintain when i'm working on a manuscript dialogue is something i regularly do maintenance on while i'm while it's running while the book is going through my head right but elements of plot i sometimes don't attend to properly and then they're broken and i have to do a big fix by the end of the book what is something that you when you're writing you know you're maintaining and what is something when you're writing that you know uh oh? I'm definitely gonna have to fix that later
0: okay first of all I have a question for clarification I love that analogy but when you talk about maintenance and and maintenance of dialogue are you talking about um getting it right as you get it down or are you talking about going out riding the bus walking down the street these days avoiding crowded places and <laughs> listening
1: <laughs> uh Both of those. Like all of that, I would consider part of my maintenance. Like when I'm on, I'm constantly I love writing first drafts in busy places, restaurant. And it's killing me right now to be working on a first draft of a new book. I can't go where the white noise is. I can't go where the people are. I can't can't steal the little snippets of conversation or the lilt in their voice and describe it. I can't do any of that. And that's usually what I think of as the maintenance. But then also when I reread, when I skim the manuscript to get back into it, I usually skip everything but the dialogue. I read all the dialogue through and just remind myself what's on everyone's mind and then keep going. As opposed to uh, other authors I know who will say like, you know, I just have to really look at my plot and make sure that that's solid before I do anything else. Which are you?
0: Well, I, you know, it depends whether I'm writing a plot-driven novel or a character-driven novel, because I have written both, right? Um, but, I, I, you know, that is all thought out ahead of time. If I'm writing a plot-driven novel, yeah, I plot it all out ahead of time and then good to go. But I, it, might, it might veer away from that, you know, depending on where the story takes me. But I also know that um, my biggest failing, <sighs> my biggest failing... Uh, that's arguable. I've got many failings. But uh, something that I'm very conscious of um, is that uh, I don't want to lose interest. I need to maintain that energy, to that drive to keep going forward. I don't want to get distracted because I am easily distracted. I, I like getting involved in lots of different creative projects. Um and so I want to make sure that I just keep going forward. And that might mean that I'm realizing that this is this is a little thin here. This needs a little bit more explanation. Or maybe I didn't research this aspect enough. Maybe I need to find out more. But rather than distracting myself from the story and doing more research depending on what it is I will just sort of leave a blank space and keep going forward it's just really important for me to get the heart I need to get that heart of the story down and, and in this particular book yeah I got that heart of the story down years ago because um, I started writing it in 2009 but it wasn't translating well you know, like the 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 heart of the story, the story that I understood, I hadn't made it clear on the page. I wasn't communicating it well enough, so it took a lot of rewrites actually to make sure that the story that I that I read, that was in my head and in my heart, was actually coming through. Um, so, dialogue, uh, plot. I want to make sure that the plot is is good, because um, you know that's where you can really get sidetracked if something's not working and if you go forward anyway then you have to accept that when you finish the book you might have to go back and take out whole big chunks because something's just not working but again it depends whether you're writing a plot-driven or a character-driven story and so a character-driven story you're following the journey of the character and so as long as you're not trying to force that character into a plot that you imagined ahead of time, which I've done, then it should work out because it's the story of a heart. It's, it's growth. It's journey, right? For years, I've been getting paid to scare people, but I'm the one who's been scared
1: all my life. Now, our dear listeners will not have seen the way you eye rolled and the little smidgen of derision that came on when you said, I've done both.
0: Right?
1: <laughs> so yeah. is this leads me to believe that uh, you're more of a pantser than a plotter.
0: Um, you know, I think I'm still on a journey as far as that goes. I think I'm becoming more of a pantser. I, most of my novels are middle grade novels. Like I, have got, uh, two older teen novels now and one junior high novel, but the rest are, are middle grade and middle grade novels are plot driven stories, primarily adventure, you know, whatever. And so I'm quite comfortable plotting. I I think the derision or the eye roll was probably just laughing at at myself, you know, because I, you know, I, I don't know, uh, because I have done both, but, um, and I've fallen into traps with both. I think a long time ago, um, I just really came to understand that a writer can can put themselves in a trap. First of all, you know, if if you decide I am a a plotter or I am a pantser and you try to stay with that no matter what story you're writing, that's where you're going to get into trouble. And sometimes when, yeah I you know for a while there I felt like I was a little bit of a plot doctor or book doctor or whatever um not not really, but in a way because I in realizing this, I was able to give advice to other writers when I was teaching workshops and whatnot they'd come to me and say this is this is I'm stuck with this. Well, tell me what kind of a story it is. It's this story, okay, and what are you doing? Well, I'm doing this, so it might be somebody who's trying to write a character driven novel but has written a plot and they're trying to force that character into a plot just like like I mentioned or um if they are writing a mystery or a thriller, uh, an adventure story, and have not written, figured out the plot, and they're just going—I mean, they might go for three hundred pages before we get to, you know, something that needs to move the story forward. So that's where you can get into trouble. My middle grade stories are plot driven, and and I've just come to understand that, and I love writing those. They're fun. Uh, there's usually a lot of humor. Um, but I'd be my nineteen novels started
1: for you. How did that start? How did middle grade novels, did you know? The reason I ask it is because Justin and I did a book uh, called Dragon Nanny, or we're working on a book called Dragon Nanny, which is rolls out of Cassie and Tonk and Rust and Water, two books that we didn't realize were for young readers until oh. they were in the world. And parents reading them to young readers is what, like, sort of got that entire train moving for us. We just made the book we most wanted to make. And then when the reader showed up, we were like, oh, OK, it's a super all ages book. What? Let's just keep doing what we're doing, but we'll market it towards young people then. Is it like that with you? Did you know you were doing uh, books for the middle grade or were you writing stories and then a publisher said, hey, this is where that would fit? What was the trajectory there?
0: I knew I was writing for, for middle grade and... I love that you say that because every writer has a different process and different way of doing it. Tim Wynn Jones also told me the same thing. Actually, he said that he writes a story and then afterwards, you know, we sort of figure out where where it fits, or maybe it's during the process. But um, I also think that most of us have an age that we go to in our minds when we go to our creative place, a place that's most comfortable, an age that's most comfortable. And so when I, you know, when I was imagining a story, when I go back to my first book, which was about uh, a girl who was terrified of flying and, and she um, gets caught in a forest fire and she has to fly her mother's float plane off of this little lake to sort of hop it to another place in order to save herself and her neighbor and, and her dog. Um, I went immediately to 12 years old because i remember so vividly being 12 years old you know in around there 11 12 13 when i was in churchill and running around the big rocks on the bay and you know finding these these old sheds and we'd go into them not understanding rules about private property at at the time and <laughs> finding boxes of old books and then in baker lake you know just having these adventures out on the tundra with with my friend that's the age that i was oh my goodness you know i just have so many fun anecdotes that I can easily go to. So for me, when I went to a creative place, a story place, a time of adventure and fun, it was 12 years old. Mm. And so that was easy. And it wasn't until I, you know, started writing more and more books that I started really thinking about, you know, not thinking about my growth as a writer. When I when I started growing as a writer and thinking about things more deeply, thinking about issues, thinking about how as human beings we process things at different ages and thinking about more difficult subjects that lent more naturally to older readers. And so that's why I I got into writing for teens, but, but I got to tell you, I mean, my teen novels, um, they can be, Tough subjects, and and the reason the last one I wrote was in two thousand and seven, and and I had (laughs) I had readers. I would tour around, and I had these teenagers ask me, "So when are you going to write another one like this?" It was such an emotionally exhausting journey for me, Um, because it's tough. Because I don't I don't know about how how you do this in in your art, but when I when I'm writing, when I'm really, I mean, you live for so long with a character, right? But you're really in the skin of that character. So the tough stuff that they're going through, it can really rip you apart. And that's why it takes me sometimes so many so many rewrites to actually go deep enough. So that's, that's something I find too. I might kind of skim the surface of where I know because I'm kind of afraid to go somewhere. So it's a little hard for me to go deeper. And when I do, that's when I know when I've got it right. That's when I got the goosebumps. That's when I'm bawling my eyes out and I can't actually see what I'm writing, which means I have to do another rewrite. <laughs> but, but it's tough.
1: So you write for yourself first. It sounds like, no matter what, I do even write for myself. You yeah, you keep in mind what the public is wanting. Yeah, I do. yeah, that's yeah.
0: Awesome. and you know, again, I respect every every writer's process, but for me, it's about finding a truthful story, um, and 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 that's being truthful to the character and the decisions that they make, uh, and and so that's that, I'm just trying to find my way through, you know, finding that story the first. The first the first draft. Later drafts, I start thinking about the reader. And and I actually mentioned this um, in a podcast interview uh, a couple of weeks ago. It's a tremendous series that's that's with the I Read Canadian folks. Actually, they're supporting it and access for copyrights supporting it. But um I mentioned did I mention that I get distracted easily and I lose my train of thought? <laughs> <laughs> um you oh, were gonna... r- Story first. Yes, yeah, story yes. Story first. Story first. Story first and then I think about the reader because when I when I wrote that my last tough novel. It was called Spider Song. It was with Penguin, and it's it's out of print now. Um, but it was about a girl. She was she was a cutter, so you know she she self injured. And I I wrote the novel. I found the story, and then afterwards, in doing a, a little additional research, I I learned that writing about that physical act of cutting was actually a trigger for some readers, and I didn't want that in my story. So I thought, okay, so. What can I do? what can I do and still tell the truthful story? So I think there was a little bit at the beginning, but then instead I just built in strategies. So I had her all the way through just using her strategies to, to not try to do that. And so that's how I treated that. So that was, I felt that was my way of being respectful to my reader. And again, every writer has a different process. Every writer has different thoughts on this and, and I respect them all, but this is the way I felt good about my story. So I think about readers later on and in this, and in this story, okay. So this is, this is a little different in in this one okay so it's a teen novel and it's about a young offender and so she's rough and tough and from a tough town and i had no swears um just because that's that's not something i naturally that's not the way i write that's not something on the air I, I, it's not my daily language unless i'm vacuum cleaning but that's that's a secret only you know that now right
1: <laughs> we will we'll so, bleep yeah. that, that out. yeah oh,
0: georgie don't stay here too long or mom will have a bird Hello.
1: this may be the most hard-hitting media related question that you've ever had anita uh from twitter i know that you as an author are a tea maker you make a nice pot of tea before you start before you start writing is this true or false if i do i have am i mischaracterizing you
0: no, it is. It is true. It is part of the story.
1: Right. Whenever you whenever you're on Twitter and you're like, OK, I'm going to get writing, there's always something to do with a hot cup of tea. Now, I also am a tea maker <laughs> when I write. I love to have a pot of tea with me when I'm writing. Uh, but it occurred to me that there are sort of two ways in which I use my tea as a writer, sometimes as a fortification and other times as a reward. Which oh, are you? Nice. Are you a person that takes the sip and then writes the sentence? and uh, Or the person that leans back from the keyboard and says, ah, that's the one, and then takes the sip as a reward?
0: No, I, I think it's it's the former. It's um, I, I drank the tea all the way through. I don't deny myself anything. Maybe I should give myself rewards. That would be really nice. But I tend to reward myself often and all the way through.
2: <laughs>
0: um, uh, what kind of tea do you drink? That's another hard-hitting question oh
1: yeah later it depends on when in the day it is for me um i really like a nice thick dark chai for the evening writing sessions and i usually double or triple the bags i know people are probably gasping in horror at that but i just love it to <laughs> give me a kick right in the face yeah um <laughs> in the morning a nice earl gray a good nice little bit of earl gray it's always always the way to go um which brings us yeah, to we
2: are the
0: same as i
1: Which brings us to the idea of a schedule. Do you keep a writing schedule? Do you follow the muse? I...
0: Tend to keep a schedule. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I spe- when I've got a deadline, when I'm when I'm in a story, when I'm when I'm working, and I know, okay, this is the time that I am now committed to the story, and I and I'm going to get it done. I've got to get it done by a certain period of time. I am in the chair every morning. I that's when I tend to uh, shut down Facebook, uh, not Twitter, so much because I have other responsibilities, the writers' union. But I will. Um, what's what's the word that not decommission. I cut it off. I say, Facebook, I quit you. And they say, no, 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 you don't really mean it. You just go away for a little while and then you can come back. So that's, that's what I do. Uh, Just because I know I'm weak, just like I, you know, I I can't wait to give myself rewards. (laughs) I'm weak. I'll forget. And I'll just go, well, I'm just going to check, you know, and, and then I, my thought is, Fragmented, and I already have problems with that. So I, I shut down social media. I like to. I am a morning person. I wake up really early. Um, my usual time to wake up, my comfortable time to wake up, is five five thirty, and right away I get in the chair, and I might check email or, or news something first. But I'll I'll have my cup of tea. I'll say good morning, Twitterverse. Uh, let's have a cup of tea, <laughs> and and then I get to it, Um, and I will write every day. And and that can be physically hard on the body to stay long periods of time in the chair. So I do actually have now a treadmill uh, in my office, which I will go on, but I'm much more likely to get up after a few hours and go for a bike ride or go for a run when I'm when I'm running just to keep the the body you know moving well because in past times I find that I lock up really easily but I'm usually good for about five hours then then I have to go off and do something else but I I stay pretty committed to a story once I'm once I'm in it and I am a morning person and so I have my earl grey in the morning and my chai in the afternoon in the evening I have to have something decaffeinated how about you are you more of a an afternoon evening person or or does it do you have a routine?
1: Uh, yeah, I'm a pretty pretty slavish to a schedule. Uh, I like to do writing. First draft writing, first thing in the morning, if I have my druthers, I get up and I just go right away and write what's fresh in my head, fresh from the unconscious, just everything just blah, get everything, I'll get the mess out uh, the early.
0: The on the page.
1: That's right. And usually what that does is, and sometimes that's 10 minutes and sometimes that's an hour and a half. It depends on on the flow. I don't restrict or worry about how much I'm going to get in that first flow. Uh, And Mm -hmm. usually during that time, I also am then thinking about um, uh, some illustration, some composition. The other part of my brain that's like, okay, we're going to also have to get drawing today. We're also going to have to get putting books together today um, starts to wake up. Uh, And so the writing is sort of a separate stretch exercise for the brain. And I don't worry about it. I have a lot, I get a lot of writing done in that or those early mornings, but not much of it is any good, generally speaking, but it's become a really good piece of exercise for me. Um, well, that's
0: interesting. Yeah, because I'm opposite. My, my best writing is in the morning and then afterwards I will edit and tweak and things
1: like that. Right. Uh, and then if I get um, on a perfect day, then I'll also do two or three hours of illustration in around there. And then usually while I'm illustrating things, better ideas, better turns of phrase, better ways to construct the mess that came out early will occur to me. Uh, And I often don't do a rewrite then. I don't go back and look at what I wrote before. I'll just start with that new idea, that new framework when I sit down to write in the afternoon. My best writing is usually late at night or in the evenings, but I can't get to it if I haven't done that morning stretch.
0: Oh, that's interesting. That's your warm-up time.
1: Yeah, it kind of just sort of gets the momentum. It's like you were talking about momentum, and I I deeply connected with this idea that you need the momentum. But for me, my momentum is not connected to the moment, but to the seed of the idea, which comes early. And then it kind of has to roll around with everything else that's on my mind during the day before it comes out.
0: seems to me that like that seed of an idea is very important, because are you talking about the theme or the idea, the heart of the story that carries it through, the through line?
1: Yeah. So um, a lot of things. So like specifically um, what usually uh, Justin and I have talked about this a lot, we get something that uh, our common language for it is we call it an anchor image. And I, a, uh, an image comes together to me uh, that is not necessarily connected to a specific place in the plot or the narrative or even the conversation, just a, a moment, not a movement between the characters and that's where things will start to sort of expand from so like right now i'm working on the follow-up to automatic age uh um which is called the backbone of night and there's a scene i don't know where it fits i don't know where it's gonna go but there's a scene i'm working on that's slowly getting longer on both ends until it'll connect to something where the father and the son are walking through this uh set of hills and there's this weird man who's watching them who's covered in birds and every time he moves the birds fly away and whenever he stops they land on him again um and it's very unnerving for the for the father and And i don't know where that why that guy i don't know who that guy is i don't know where he's from i don't know what those hills are i don't know how they got there and i don't know where they're going but that idea i can't shake it It started in that early thing. And so I'm just writing around it until there's enough of it to plug into another thing, which is very different than how I would do a graphic novel. In a graphic novel, you would would have to draw that image. And so you would have a transition image that got you there. And so you'd have to know what came before and after. Whereas in narrative, I have, or at least in the way that I structured how the story is written for automatic age, there are gaps of time where the characters have moved to different places and the reader doesn't get to be told how they got there necessarily just to know that they are constantly on the move. So I have this sort of MacGuffin in that if I can't figure out how to make it fit, I don't worry about the geography of how they got there. I make the scene fit the dialogue. So what they're talking about might be the bridge so the reason the reader is there is because this is the place where the conversation continued, right? Or the theme is there. So this is the place where that idea, um, whatever the sort of, I don't know what you call it, the spirit of the story is arriving, right? And whatever symbols or imagery that I wanna use has been recalled again in that area. So I try to leave that as the guide for the reader so that there's not just a bunch of non sequitur stuff but I let the ideas arrive out of order often, and then I have to sort of figure out how they fit.
0: I've, I've had uh, other writers, not, not many, but I've heard a, a few writers mention that, that a scene will come to them. And, and you're a very visual person because of the type of work that you do. So, you know, talking to other writers who are, are talking about narrative all the time, they'll do it in that way with narrative they'll have an idea for a scene and they'll write that scene no idea how it's going to fit into the story and then they figure it out afterwards but I love this you know this idea of starting with an image and you know the how that would work for me is maybe not uh, an image, but an idea, a thought, a phrase or something like that. And then I'll be imagining, you know, where, where that takes place and, and who the characters are. But um, yeah, then, then you have to build a whole world around it. Taggart steps onto the moors as the fog curls around his ankles. He shivers, buttons his coat and walks on, disappearing into the mist. A shadowy figure lurches into frame, dripping with foul water and dark oozing mud yeah yeah bill for the last time in a minute it's a bit of a puzzle i mean not the puzzle of putting it all together for you but the puzzle of oh here's this this image that i'm struck by it's it's holding me what's the story here well did you say that fair?
1: definitely fair yeah and the other thing too is that uh you know collaborating with justin as often as we do there's this neat part of me that now that I'm working on prose novels as well as the graphic novels, I, I I have really realized that part of what happens when we're collaborating on comics or graphic novels together is the subconscious elements that I usually have to figure out what those themes and emotional beats are and all that stuff uh, that you'd have to bake into your prose. I can just freely let Justin do all of that. And then I arrive to the pictures and whatever I feel looking at them becomes that beat oh nice right and he's been working on uh last night how late did you stay up working on that stuff justin for dragon nanny
2: it was around 1 30 or
1: 2 i sent you that email that was an early Um, night for you then right
2: yeah (laughs) i've actually like as you guys have been having this discussion i'm sorry i've been so quiet but i'm i'm quite aware that my connection i don't think is quite as good as as either of yours so i'm I'm afraid I'm going to come off as a little too garbled to be too big of a part of, uh, of the podcast on this episode. Um, but I'm, I'm doing exactly what you guys were just talking about where, um, the world that the next graphic novel is set in, I didn't exactly know what the, um, like the character of the world was still a bit of a mystery. And so I've spent the last couple of days just building background environments and the, uh, the beginning of the story is the main character just kind of exploring the world. And so along with them, I've just been kind of building all these um, desert environments and beaches and, and grass hills with all these floating islands and kind of just been um, discovering the world. And now I've done all this work. I have all these scenes and now I'm starting to plop it into the actual InDesign document. And I didn't exactly, you know, like I was just kind of, going to town on environments. And now this little narrative is setting itself up, which I was not, I couldn't see the big picture until just recently. Um, And now I realize what I'm, the story that's um, been there the whole time, I'm starting to see it and it's really neat.
1: Yeah, Anita, for your sake and to to first time listeners, uh, Justin and I have been working on Dragon Nanny back and forth uh, for, I guess, a year or two now. And
2: yeah, and it kind of goes back to what Anita was saying at the beginning of the episode as well. Like it was um, the initial idea we had, we had a chunk of it, but we almost needed to get away from it for a while and come back to figure out the rest of it, you know?
1: Um, and it, we've uh, gone through, I would say we keep throwing out the plot. That's the thing about this story <laughs> that we keep doing. We keep saying, okay, it's about, this is what's going to happen. No, this is what's going to happen. No. Cause we know what it's about emotionally. Right. Mm. This connection of parent to child and the way that the parent will sacrifice anything for the child and how they have to allow it, the child to grow up. And this is the dragon nanny. Right. We're doing it through this lens of this fantasy world with this little robot nanny caring for dragon eggs. Um, But those beats are all in there. What it's really about when you look at it is so obvious. So it's just been a question of what are the ways in which we're going to show it that will be interesting to our readers. And now that we have a better sense of who our readers are after the last two books, we kind of been pivoting and moving around to kind of take take that reader on a journey that they haven't been on, on the other two books, which is another thing. Like we're not doing the same thing again. We're trying to say, okay, you went here and you did this and you went here in rust and water and you did this. And here's a different kind of story, same kind of ingredients. There's a silent guardian and there's someone that needs them. And there's um, a wild alien environment, but how they navigate it. We've just been kind of exploring along the way, which is really wild actually.
0: I love that. And I love what you said about throwing out the plot. And so what you're working on is a character driven story. So you can do that. I think the plot can change. You can get trapped in a plot and that, that actually just, it made me think of my experience. The reason this book um, took me 10 years to write is I had the heart of the story, just like you're talking about You emotional beats, the heart, you know what it's about. But when, when I started writing it, um, I was so used to writing plot-driven stories. I think I panicked partway through, and I threw in, you know, a bit of a crime novel. And, you know, I, I had all kinds of things going on um, that I was forcing my characters into a situation, and it was all very exciting with, you know, plane crashes and other things that are happening. Well, there's still a sort of plane crash in this one, but it's different. Um, and it wasn't working because I, I panicked And instead of just following the character's journey, I stuck to what was most familiar to me. And so that's part of the reason. (laughs) Uh, This this book, you know, right now it's called You Don't Have to Die in the End. I have to tell you, in the beginning, it was called Elliot Grimm. I just had a name, Elliot Grimm. Mm -hmm. The book wasn't working. And so this is just something that I, I just wanted to mention. I thought when I started rewriting it, like I had set it aside and I wanted to get back into it and I thought, okay, it's still it's still not working. I need to do something really different so I can come at it from a completely different perspective so I can see it with fresh eyes, maybe, something like that. The tricks that we play with ourselves, right? Mm-hmm. And that, so I thought I'm gonna change the sex of my main character and still have that character interact because it was still a story about a fragmented family. It was still a story about a tragic past and how this character was gonna work the way through it but I changed the sex of my character and I really loved it. And so that's why Elliot Grimm became Eugenia Grimm. And the book changed quite a bit after that, I have to say, because, uh, you know, young men and women will interact differently with each other, but the other characters, uh, you know, they, they stayed somewhat the same and, um,
1: can I ask you a question that I think, so we, I know from uh, comments and feedback that we get about the podcast that a, a good number of our listeners are people who are uh, starting, emerging, getting that first novel, getting that first comic or graphic novel sort of out of them. You just described what I think a lot of um, early writers would be the moment they give up, like the book doesn't yeah. work. The main character isn't the way you like it, and you can't get the plot to fit the heart of the story. Should you know? But you didn't say, Ah, I'm not a writer, I don't know how to do this. What was the thing that allowed you to say, These are the changes that I'm going to make in order to stay with this?
0: Hmm. You know, I. I never I never give up on a story even one that I had to physically say okay this story is not working I have to walk away from it it's still out there somewhere and so I know that one day I might go back to it that might I might have a new idea who knows where these ideas come from and a different way to approach it. I never give up on a story. I am prepared to completely tear it apart. I'm not, I'm not too, you know, there's the word precious about, you know, we can't be precious with, with our work. It's a terrible word. I don't like that word. So I don't know why I used it, (laughs) but I mean, we get too attached. I'm not, I'm attached to the heart of my story but how that character goes through that journey, I am completely open to and excited to see how that's going to happen. And you have to be open to changes. And sometimes if you're, if you're too close to it, it, you know, you just can't. Like you talked about. You know, working on your next story and how it's taken time and you've gone away and gone back to it that's the healthiest way to approach it so for, for writers who are who might give up, don't give up just set it aside, maybe you're too locked into the idea of what it should be so go away, paint a shed you know, whatever What are you building a dam or something? Yeah. You ever built one before?
2: No. How do you know it'll work? Well of course it will, why wouldn't it? Yeah but how do you know? I just know
1: well, you do lots of other things. You act, and you produce a show, and you do all kinds of stuff. Do you want to tell uh, people what else you do with your with your life? What have you done with your life, Anita?
0: What have I done with my life? <laughs> Why am I a writer? Good life choices. No, I'm kidding. I, I couldn't imagine doing anything else. Um, I have tried on occasion to walk away from writing. I mean, I I started out uh, with a career in the aviation industry, in in air traffic services. And my husband and I both worked in air traffic services, and and he's an air traffic controller. I was a flight service specialist, otherwise known as a radio operator. And um, when our girls were were very young, uh, it was having we were shift workers. So having five different sets of caregivers was really hard on them. So I made the decision to, first of all, take a leave of absence. And then with our continued moving around, it just made sense for me to cut that tie and, and resign. And, but you know, it's just like, okay, what else am I? Yeah, I'm a, I'm a mom and a wife and that's really important, but I, I thought, what else? And I had always wanted to be a writer when I was younger, I told myself I could never be good enough, but by the time I was in my uh, late 20s, I, I'd forgotten that I used to tell myself that. So I thought, okay, I'm going to do this.
1: So there wasn't a moment that allowed you to say, okay, now I'm going to write? You had just forgotten that you had had the misgivings? Okay.
0: Yeah, that's pretty much it. Honestly, that's pretty much it. Because I, I talked myself out of so much when I when I was young. I do remember coming to a point in my adult life when I watched my now husband, at the time we, we weren't married, Um do go-kart racing with his pals who were all... He was just a handsome my... stranger then. He was He was not quite a stranger. We were going out, but oh. uh, we weren't married. And he went and did these go-kart races with his friends. I was supposed to join them, but I was just... I was just overcome with this shyness and I just thought, oh, I can't do this because I'm, I'm not going to do it right and it'll be ridiculous and, and I'm going to blush and I really hate blushing and blushing makes me blush more. So I didn't do it. And at that moment, as I watched them go around, I thought, why do I do this to myself? I just missed out on something that I really want to do because I'm shy. And so it wasn't an, an overnight switch. But at that point, I, I think I told myself, I can't just keep missing out on things because I'm, I'm shy or I don't think I'm good enough or I think I'm going to be embarrassed. And so I think that was part of the seed of that. And then it was just years later. It's just like, yeah, I'm going to write. And so that seed was already planted that, yes, you can do anything. You can do anything anything you want. If you work really hard at it and you're just willing to put in the time and the hours and not expect it to happen overnight, that I firmly believe. We get into the subject of talent. Okay. I believe that some people do have raw talent. I don't. Um, and, And raw talent, I don't think will be publishable work or work that an audience is ready to receive unless you keep working at it and develop those skills. Skills have to be developed. You have to put in the time, put in the hours, whether you've got that raw talent or not. And so when I realized that, I realized that I am the most pig-headed person that I know, except for other members of my family. We're all really pig-headed. And that serves well in this sort of thing. So I thought, yes, I'm going to be a writer. And I know it's going to be a long time. And I don't care because it truly is about the journey. It's about making stories. It's about finding your way through these stories. And it's the most rewarding thing that I know. Yeah, I, you know, through that journey, I've become interested in so many other things that have been associated. Um, so I started out as a full-time writer. And and then, you know, other transferable skills. I, I worked in radio. I worked as a literacy tutor. I worked at, at a, in a ma- at a magazine as a marketing person. I worked for a publishing house. And, oh, now I'm working for an arts organization. Organization. I'm an arts administrator. And, and now I'm involved on boards of arts organizations and writers organizations. And one thing leads to another. And life is so interesting and so exciting. Um, acting terrified me. But here we are and that's another journey
1: I'm on now. <laughs> and you have a show. Uh, I ran into the last time I saw you in person, I accidentally turned the corner at McNally Robertson, our local <laughs> favorite bookseller here in Winnipeg. and there was Ariel Gordon up on a pedestal surrounded by flowers, which are my That's right. Uh, reading poetry uh, in front of the cameras and you had that you had what I have come to realize is uh, producer face. Right. Where the person is holding, usually their arms are crossed and then uh, they're (laughs) holding the, the, the sheet that is like the stuff that you have to do or the prompts or whatever it is, but they don't have to look at it anymore but it's up in their field of vision. And then you had that frown of like, we're going to make this just right. And I was like, oh, well, something real is happening here. Um, and I should have, of course, walked away and made no interruption. Uh, but instead I um, just walked over and gave uh, Ariel a hug and then walked off. So I don't actually know what was going on at that time. You want to tell us and our readers?
0: Oh, I my- love to. Okay, so first I have to backtrack the story a little bit. I decided that we needed an author interview show in Manitoba to raise the profile of Manitoba authors. So I had this idea on, on the Shaw Spotlight channel to, to produce and host uh, the show, that a half-hour interview show that featured not only Manitoba authors, but at least in the first season, books that are set in Manitoba to really let just general viewers know, um, not necessarily people who follow Uh, literary circles, but just let people know that, man, we've got so much talent, so many interesting people that are writing stories here in Manitoba, set in our backyard, many more than most people realize. So I wanted to just raise that profile. So we started with this half-hour interview series, but because our mandate was was really set to uh, Manitoba authors with books set in Manitoba that excluded a lot of other Manitoba authors. And I thought, well, you know, Shaw stories, um, sometimes they need these little fillers, right? Just a short couple of minutes. So a way to get more authors involved was to have these Made in Manitoba minis. So the show is called Made in Manitoba, Stories from Home, and then we have these Made in Manitoba minis. And so I, I we decided to film authors Uh, First of all, just short little one minute readings, just a little bit from a current book and then also a short Q&A segment where they just answer maybe four questions that will fit in between two and three minutes and we can do lots of those. But because I had my my team, all of, it's all volunteer teams, uh, my, my editor, my editor, a, a wonderfully talented young woman named Erin Dare, you might notice the similarity with the last <laughs> name. Okay, so I'm, I'm going to sideline a little bit here because when I was putting my team together, I didn't want to draw directly from the film industry because when a movie comes to town, everybody in the film industry, they got to go to do work. Pulled right? out,
1: now, yeah, for sure.
0: Yeah, I was hoping to find people with transferable skills. And I was talking one day, and I was saying to my my daughter was there, and I was saying, I just, I just don't know who I'm going to get for an editor because that's, you know, that's really time consuming, and and I just don't know who could do that. And she said, uh, Mom. I know how to do this. I do this all the time. And she started asking me which program I was going to use and all of these details. I just like, how do you know this? She's, what do you think I did in my room all those years when I was in high school? <laughs> I don't think I actually knew. Well, she played the piano, but um, yeah, she's been editing videos since she was a teenager. So because she was really involved with editing the main show, I thought I didn't want to burden her further. And she has a full-time job. So I didn't want to burden her for not burden her. I didn't want to ask her to then take on these short minis. So, I decided I would learn those skills. You know, I had the program, and I went through tutorials, and I asked, uh, you know, a lot of advice from our, our producer um, at, at Shaw, um, Jonathan. And and then I also asked a friend of mine who's in the film industry, George Arello, who's so helpful. He's he's an extremely, he's a superb editor, and he works on many movies here in town, but he's he's the type, type of fellow who's always willing to help out, right? So, um, so I asked him if he would give me a few pointers and he says, yeah, sure. I'll come over right now. He's a bit of a taskmaster because he does expect perfection, but I'm so, I'm so glad for that really. Uh, and so he helped me learn how to edit these. So now I have more skills. Now I'm an editor too. So, okay. So I'm, I'm a writer. I'm a producer. I'm a party clown. No, that was years ago. Um, (laughs) Whoa, 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 whoa.
1: Back that up. You don't get to gloss over party clown. Tell us that story. Have- oh,
0: that was, that was 100 years ago. You know, it's just, again, it's one of those things. It's it's that restless mind. It's wanting to try new things. And I was in Thompson, and I was with my girls. This is before I started writing. It's actually when I started um, acting a little bit in theater, just local theater. Uh, I had a home business that I had started up. Uh, it had to do with coffee and tea. And um, I don't know, I just started dressing up and being a party clown and doing songs and and you know it's just friends it wasn't an advertised thing but yeah uh i think there's actually a photo that i can find from my girls and i and i'm dressed up in my party clown sort of outfit so i'll have to dig that up (laughs)
1: um i'll leave them i'll leave her nameless but you're not the first author i know that has a has a party clown story in their past. I'm going to have to start yeah. asking questions about party clowns and I wonder if maybe there's a uh, a through line right that leads you know like they say I that uh, you know that a lot of uh, sociopaths are surgeons, maybe a lot of authors secretly started as as uh, clowns. It's hard to know.
0: Beep beep Richie. I didn't hear that. I didn't I beg your pardon. In all seriousness, I, I had another theory about authors, and this doesn't, this doesn't apply to everyone, of course. But I noticed that there's a, a usually large number of, of authors who, for one reason or another, growing up felt like an outsider uh, mm. of some sort. Whether a lot of military brats um, are authors. And, uh, you know, for me, it, it was about moving around so much and always being on the outside of a community. How about yourself? Yeah. Tell me more about you. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, I'm definitely a, uh, you know, and I've said this before, uh, a extrovert by training, but an introvert by nature. Um, and, you know, it's interesting you say that about, uh, you know, army brats and people who have a lot of essentially time where they're separate. To become a good writer, you have to, to be a good reader. And I think if you are uh put in a t- in a place in your life where you have to escape or you have to spend time alone or you have to spend time in introspection, the novel becomes your best friend. Right? And that's the thing that never lets you down. It's always there with you. You can bring it, you, you know, you can literally put it in your pocket. Um and I was that kid for sure. I had a book with me every place that i went uh and uh anytime that i felt even remotely uncomfortable with what was going on in the world i would just immediately retreat between the pages of whatever book i brought with me and there i was safe no matter what else was going on um and i was a uh you know uh, I was also the kid that when my parents would say, come with me and go do this, I would say yes. And then immediately on whatever that thing would be, you know, my dad would take me to a meeting or to some, you know, on some grand adventure uh, where we would meet lots of people. The introvert side of me would kick in and then I would be like, "Okay, well, I can't handle this right now. I'm just going to go over to the corner and read the book. And so those two sides, my my mother was quite an introvert and my father is quite an extrovert. And so those two sides of me were well served in the uh, upbringing that I had. Um, yeah, it's interesting. And I, like you, I've done lots of different stuff. I, uh, you know, I owned a comic store, I owned a movie distribution company. I uh, taught uh, in a classroom for 10 years. Um, you know, anything to do with words and pictures, I liked, essentially. And I wasn't quite confident in my ability to, um, get what was in my head onto the page until, you know, sort of my early, my late twenties, my early thirties, I just started to say, you know, if I'm going to do this, I'm going to do it. And a friend of mine, uh, Anthony Allen, who is a, uh, was an industrial designer at the time said, listen, you buy your, you, uh, sell your strengths and you buy your weaknesses in every job. So whatever you don't know how to do, find someone to help you with that part. And whatever you do know how to do, get someone to pay you for that part. And uh, that really sort of changed my worldview when it started to work in comics because I couldn't get comics work. I was certainly not good enough to do comics, but I could draw well enough to do uh, set design. I could draw well enough to get uh, storyboards together. And so I started working with a film company, uh, developing their ideas and their concepts and that really gave me a lot of confidence to say like well listen they're paying me for my drawings i can definitely do comics comics is not harder than producing a movie or a film or a television show uh it's just a different set of skills um so when i'm sitting across the studio from justin who is roughly the same age now as i was then and i see a guy who uh and we're just going to talk about you while you're there justin uh who just anything he doesn't know how to do. He just sets about practicing until it's, he's good at it. Um, and I realized that that didn't occur to me that that was actually true until I'd already done it. You know, I probably had produced a thousand pages of comics before I realized, Oh, it's just practice that counts. Right.
0: Isn't that interesting?
1: Yeah. Yeah. Um, We all
0: have a different way of of going through this journey, but there's so many similarities as well. We're just not thinking about that. Well, and, you know, uh,
1: as as someone who wanted to do science fiction, fantasy, speculative fiction, stuff that was like sort of weird or horror stuff, uh, anyone that I knew or could find as a mentor wasn't interested they were all part of the literati if you will in canadian yeah. literature and they were just not interested in a story that didn't have uh, a lonely cabin and a sad mother figure you know like they just weren't interested in working on a story with me that wasn't related to that so it took me a while to find people who were uh who were doing it and uh, one of those people was Stephen uh, steven erickson who is a uh, lived in Winnipeg for a good time, right? Yeah, you know, you know, Steve. Uh, he would go to the same coffee shop that I went to write and I didn't know that that's who he was or what he was doing. But uh, a mutual friend of ours uh, introduced us and said, like, here, you're doing the job that he wishes he had. You guys should talk. Right. And it was Stephen that really said to me, like, oh, yeah, don't worry about trends Don't worry about what the marketplace says. Don't worry about what editors want. Don't worry about what anybody says about your writing. Make the best story you can make first.
0: That's terrific.
1: And then the rest, then you start taking it around, right? Yeah. And he said the best part about doing it that way is then you'll make five or six stories and you will look at them and say, I don't like those ones. I'm not taking those anywhere. But this one I'm proud of. This one I'm willing to fight for. This one I'm willing to take around. And that was really important uh, in my trajectory as a writer to be uh, with someone who just said, like, forget the industry. Make a good book first. And he had gone through this, um, you know, he he told me about trying to get published in Canada and the U.S. And he was being turned down constantly. And it wasn't until he started submitting his work in the U.K. that, um he first got, you know, that big publishing deal with the Mazeline books. So when I first started out in comics, same thing. I started looking specifically just sort of like almost as a lark for UK publishers of independent comics. And my first published comic story was in a UK anthology just by that same, you know, um, his sort of, his advice was that like, if you are from somewhere far away, they'll imagine any flaw in the story as being, Cultural. Oh. <laughs> I like that. <laughs> right? Um, or anything they perceive that way. And I, we all, we yeah. laughed at that over, uh, over espressos one day. And that really like set for me is that, you know, your book isn't necessarily up to you who yeah. it's for. You know, and Justin and I have figured that out. We, we, When we made our first graphic novel, we made it sort of for us. And we had a distribution model going to shows where we didn't need to ask a publisher's advice. We didn't need to ask their permission. Uh, and we had skills enough to produce a book and take it out and sell thousands of copies of it to people. And then those people who were showing up told us who our market was. Right? We just sort of paid attention to who was there. So we got, in a way, we got lucky. It was uh, a... Uh, lightning certainly struck there for us, which is not uh, the done thing. But we don't get that. Uh, yeah, oh, well, yeah, yeah, my book's arrived. Yeah, you can see. Dear listener, you have it. Anita can see it, and uh, Justin can see it if he turns his, his video on. But uh, automatic age arrived. So I uh, have for myself and the longtime listeners to the podcast will know Justin and I do between 25 and 30 away shows a year. And so I have a thousand copies of automatic age waiting to go with me on the road. And of course, everything's wow. canceled. The world is canceled. So yeah. it's an interesting thing to be, uh, sitting on those books right now. And then, um, I mean, you can see behind me, I have a library at home. I was sitting here, Uh, just two days ago and it suddenly occurred to me that I was reading a book uh, that had been written about 120 years ago and I was just reading this story and it just occurred to me that I'm discovering this for the first time now a hundred years later whatever I think the rush is to get my book out is kind of stupid. The real the real problem right now is that bookstores are closing, that everyone who sells books is out of a job. Like, that's the real tragedy right now. Not that I don't get to have a book launch, right? Because the book is written. Yeah. It exists. It will filter into the world at its own pace. And that also is not up to me. And just, I had a moment where I finally went, like had a big sigh and said, okay, there are bigger problems. And publishing is the byproduct of writing. So... Let's just get on to the next thing.
0: That's, that's a terrific way. That's a, that's a terrific approach to this. This is a moment in time that we are in right now. It will not last forever. Tomorrow, today is history and all of that. The situation that we're in, yeah, it can be financially tough. It can be worrying. We're all worried about so many things right now. And that's a whole other aspect that, that can affect your, your artistry, just worry and stress. But it will pass. Relax take a breath. I can't control this moment. All I can do is write a true story. And when the time comes to assist in it, whatever way I can, then I will do that. Yeah. Yeah. Live, been, in the moment.
1: live in the moment. Well, and I've been very lucky, you know, we've been all, I think all of us have been lucky that only the quarantine has affected us. Like the illness has not affected anyone in my family. The, the, yeah. the, the bigger stakes have not landed for us. And so all we have to do is isolate, monitor the bank account more closely than you normally might otherwise, and uh, try to get your regular life rolling in a smaller space than you're used to. I mean, that's, you know, as far as problems go, not so much.
0: That's interesting. And, you know, that's very much the artist's uh, way of thinking. Do you think – I mean, maybe that's arrogant for, for me to say, but I, I think we are very used to taking a step back and saying, wait a moment, let's think about the deeper picture here. And, you know, other people who aren't artists are also capable of doing that. But I, I just think that in a way, that's our job to to think about that.
1: Yeah, well, and even uh, Justin, you sent that uh, those uh, pages to me last night, uh, and then he was tweeting about just this idea of uh, escape, right? You just have to make a place to go. Sometimes that's really the artist's power, right? You can make a place to go and visit and then come back a little bit stronger if, uh, if it worked yeah. out the right way.
0: You know, I, I, I signed off a, an email with somebody the other day and it was just sort of, we, was sort of a, a thread of an idea that I find really interesting. And that is, let's rename this, this world. Let's, let's give it a different name and pretend it's a different world and see how we think about it. <laughs> Yeah,
1: Yeah, so true. So true. Well, um, this has been Super Pulp Science. Uh, We have had Anita Dare with us, and you can find her new book, You Don't Have to Die, in the end. at booksellers everywhere. I mean,
0: McNally Robinson is my favorite independent bookstore. They do a stellar job, and 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 they've got an online ordering system, so that's terrific. Information can be found, both our books, uh, through Great Plains Publications, and I and I think that they. They'll also ship out directly from there, as a lot of publishers are.
1: You can also get copies of all of Justin and my work uh, at McNally Robinson also. So we are, uh, yeah, we love that bookstore. This is Gregory Komijic telling you that you should join the fight and make comics.